Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. So imagine, if you can, a group of Christians trying to live out their faith, their new faith, in a culture that was so heathen, so pagan, that while one of their key virtues encouraged among all was brotherly love, that's not a high humanistic love for all of humanity or mankind mankind kind of love. It's a love for my side kind of love. It's literally a brotherly love, only brothers. Why would you possibly love anyone who's different from you or disagrees with you or isn't like you? That's not what love is for. Love is for those of us in the family. I mean, it's a culture that's that's so pagan, so heathen, that they saw sex as something that you just do with whomever you want, whenever you want, whoever you're attracted to. And if that's your spouse that you're most attracted to, great. If it's not, it doesn't really matter. You can find somebody on the side or multiple somebodies or whatever gender. It doesn't particularly matter. Uh, just whoever catches your fancy. I mean, it's, it's not what marriage is for. It's for something else. So go get what you need to get wherever you need to get it. It's a a culture that's so heathen, so pagan, uh, that pleasure is the highest virtue. Uh, So when it comes to stuff, money, possessions, there's two schools of thought. Either get by on as little as you can so you can fill up on experiences, you know, so life really means something, or get as much as you can so with it you can buy whatever you need in order to be happy. That's the way it works. And in this culture, a new group of Christians is emerging, and they're trying to figure out what their worship looks like and what their lives look like in this world, what parts of their old lives they can bring into their new identities with Christ, and what parts of their new identity overrides the patterns and the stories of their old lives. Now, I know it sounds like I could be talking about today, but I'm actually not. I'm talking about first and century Christians living in a Greek and Roman context. As the church flourished in the first and second century, Christians everywhere in every city faced this same challenge. What in my culture fits within my faith and what doesn't? What practices, what stories that my culture is telling me can still shape me? And in what ways do I need to be shaped by the story of God into a different direction? 
We've been working our way through Hebrews. If you have one of these, we're on page 54. If you don't, there's a black Bible under the seat in front of you. You can uh, thumb almost to the back to find Hebrews chapter 13. We have been working our way through Hebrews for 30-something weeks now, and we've gotten through or past all of the kind of high rhetorical uh, flourishes, all the doctrinal exposition, all of the really rich language that, that many of us resonate with in Hebrews, and we've come to the part where the author starts to say, now, all of that, that whole story, everything I've told you about being separated from God and having a great high priest who's better than everything else, who's come down, who's given a once and for all final sacrifice, who's brought you near to God, who's t- torn down every barrier, who now gives you the confidence to enter into the grace of God before the very throne of God himself. In light of all of that, if you didn't catch any of that, there's 36 sermons you can listen to online. In light of all of that, how do we live? How do we live out acceptable worship, he called it at the end of chapter four, or chapter 12. Acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Chapter 13, then, is what a life, a life transformed by worship, a life lived into the reality of who God is, a life lived in conformity to who God is and what he's done for us in light of this whole story. Chapter 13 is what that kind of life looks like. If you're one of those who has been brought near to God through the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, this is what it does to you. And for these brand-new Christians trying to figure that out in this culture that said, hey, there's more than one way to God, so let's just all figure it out and get along mindset, they discovered, like we'll discover this morning going through these six verses, that Christianity is more inclusive, more exclusive, and more open-handed than the story that their culture had told them. That Christianity, from these six verses, a life lived in conformity to the reality of who God is, leads us to be more inclusive in who we love, more exclusive in what we'll do, and more open-handed with what we have. More inclusive, more exclusive, more open-handed. That's where we're going this morning. We're going to start with more inclusive by looking at the first couple of verses. Right at this point, like I said, he's passed all the rhetorical high point flourishes, and he's moving into almost a bullet point sort of, hey, short to the point, here's what you need to do. And so four quick commands come out in the first three verses. One, let brotherly love continue. Two, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Three, remember those who are in prison. Four, remember those who are mistreated. Four quick commands, two about love, two about care. He says, look, for a life conformed to the reality of God in your life, in your worship, here's what you'll do. Let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love, though, for Christians meaning not just my biological family, not just those who share a common ancestry, Jesus himself had looked at his disciples and said, you are brothers, you are sisters. So the early Christian church heard this and said, brotherhood, sisterhood, isn't just common ancestry, it's common confession. If we believe the same, we're brothers and sisters. Let brotherly love continue. So it was ludicrous to the Greek mind, but the Christian said, yeah, brotherly love applies to more than just my blood brother or my parents or my siblings. It applies to the whole family of faith. Turns out your family is a lot bigger than you thought it was. 
It has more weird uncles than you thought it did too. Brotherly love, let it continue. The second is do not neglect to show hospitality. Hospitality to strangers, actually it's a word, I want to spend more time in this than I should, but it's a word that's built the same way as brotherly love. It literally means love the stranger, love of the stranger. He says, let love of the brothers continue, brothers and sisters, let love of the stranger continue. Don't neglect it. Now, there's this kind of common Greek idea at the time that Zeus would take on the character of a wandering pilgrim, a stranger, show up at people's doors, it's like a Beauty and the Beast thing, knock on the door and find out how hospitable they are. And if they rebuff him, they're cursed, but if they welcome him in, then they're blessed. Zeus watches over all the strangers, and he blesses those who take care of the strangers. So yeah, be hospitable. But be hospitable to a point. You love the stranger because they're a threat or a blessing, but a threat. The Christian story says you love the stranger because they might be a brother. They might be a sister. They might be a future brother or a future sister. The idea of stranger shows up all throughout the New Testament as different writers say, look, we were strangers to the household of God before Christ left the house of God and came here outside the camp, the author of Hebrews will tell us later, and brought us in, adopted us, made us family, made us brothers and sisters. So hospitality was a huge part of the early Christian culture. In fact, one of the early Christian writers said, uh, if you see somebody and they're not hospitable to strangers and they don't care for those in prison, you should be asking yourself, are they really a believer? That's how important it was. Because every time a Christian loves the stranger, they're loving that person in the same way God loved them. Every time the Christian welcomes a stranger, they're loving that person in the same way that God loved them. We were strangers. We were aliens. We were foreigners. We were at war with God until he brought us in and adopted us into his family. How can we not turn around and see those who are outside the family and say, you are where I was? Let me introduce you to my father. How can we not go to the person outside and and love them? That was us. That was us not that long ago. So let brotherly love continue, but also don't neglect to show hospitality. Welcome in the outsider because you too were once an outsider. You too were once someone who had to be brought in. It's an opportunity to love the same way God loved you. Or as the author of Hebrews puts it, to entertain angels unawares. I have no idea what that means. Most people don't have any idea what it means, but here's our best guess. He's referring back to some Old Testament stories. Uh, Abraham, most probably easy to remember, who uh, was hospitable towards a couple of strangers. Turns out they were angels in disguise. Now, the point here is probably not that God has sent his angels out in the form of strangers to test your hospitality. That's the Zeus story. I think what is going on here is he's saying, look, every time you turn around and show love to a stranger the same way God showed love to you, God is present there. There's almost a a sacramental nature to it, that the grace of God is infusing the guest-host relationship beyond just the normal social niceties and politeness. Every time you love like God, 
and love the stranger, he's working in some way that maybe you didn't expect. Every stranger who comes across your path to whom you show hospitality, love for the stranger, and welcome them in, it's an opportunity for God to do something maybe you weren't expecting. Just like all those times in the Old Testament where an angel showed up in the guise of a stranger. God was doing something they weren't really expecting. Two commands about love. Also two commands about care, about the kind of care we extend to brothers and sisters. It says, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them. Remember those who are mistreated, since you are in the body. Now, remember of course, doesn't mean just bring back to mind for the purpose of recollection. You know, you're sitting at dinner and saying, honey, do you remember Pastor so-and-so who's been imprisoned for his faith? Yeah, why? I just thought we should remember. Pass the peas. You're supposed to remember in order to do something, in order to extend care, not just to remember, at the very least to pray, but to care in some, very, in some physical and tangible way. Now, the first Part of this commandment is, is, is to put yourself in that same place. Remember them as though you were in prison with them. Remember this mistreatment because you too have a physical body. You know what it feels like when it's hurt. You can use that empathy thing that my mom kept telling me to have growing up, and you can empathize with somebody in prison, somebody who's being abused, and say, I wouldn't want to feel that way. What would I want if I were in their shoes? And then do that. Of course, remember those in prison is not an easy command to keep. Prison at the time was not, was not staying at a nice hotel. Uh, prisoners were responsible for their own food, their own bedding, all of their necessities, which is difficult to do when you're in prison. So they depended on family. Family had to come meet the need. Of course, if brotherly love, can, you know, if brotherly love is continuing, then your family includes also the household of faith, and so the household of faith shows up, and they also help meet the needs. There's one historical witness who actually makes fun of Christians for doing this. He says when one of the Christian leaders was imprisoned, his church brought him food and water every day and even bribed the guards so that different people could go in every night and just keep him company so he didn't have to be alone in the dark. This is worth laughing at because nobody does this for somebody who's not related to them. Nobody does this unless the person in prison is somehow bringing shame on the family and then needs to go be taken care of. Nobody does this except the Christians who said, no, that person in prison is my brother. They're my, they're my sister. Of course, by showing up with food and clothing and bedding for them, they were effectively saying, like, what that guy's guilty of, I'm probably guilty of too. I should be in there with him. Would you mind if I drop this stuff off and leave? Brotherly love doesn't always tell us to do what's smart, but it does tell us to do what's right. And as John said, or wrote, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, for one another. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect loving the stranger. Remember those who are in prison. Remember those who are mistreated. This is a radically more inclusive love, a broader love than the culture of the time. First century Christian love was not about managing your relationships in order to get out of them what you need. It was about being in relationship in order to give to people what they need. 
This kind of love is radically more inclusive than the love at the time and more inclusive than the love shown by the world around us right now. I mean, in today's world, the world tells us, yeah, you should love everyone. Love is all you need. Love's the answer. That is, you should love everyone who's worth being loved. Right? The people who aren't worth being loved, the people who are different from us, who disagree with us, who vote party line the other direction from us, the people who are other, they're not worthy of love. Sure, they're humans, whatever, but they're also wrong, so somebody has to tell them. But we don't love the people who are different from us. There, there's, there's room, maybe, for the stranger to come into the family and be loved, but not as long as they remain strange. Only once they become like us are they then allowed to be part of us. Only once they have cleaned themselves up enough or conformed or agreed or something will we then extend to them the love that we think they deserve based on how good they are or how much like us they are. That's what the world tells us today. Even on the personal level, not just the big picture level, on the personal level, our world tells us, yeah, love, but only as long as you're getting something out of it. Only as long as the relationship is less work than reward, right? As soon as that person takes too much out of you, as soon as they require too much of an investment, then you got to let them go. Just don't have the capacity for that. Now, in some ways, that's healthy and necessary. Love doesn't mean you get to be walked all over. But if that's your go-to the first time you have a conflict with somebody, like, oh, I don't know, that person's just a lot of work. I'm, I'm just going to kind of let them, you know, let it go, let it go. That's not Christian love either. Christian love, the, a life that is formed around the story of who God is and what he's done for us and the kind of love that he has shown us is radically more inclusive in who it draws in and who it brings in and who it loves. When we're defined by the story of God, it turns us into the type of people who love indiscriminately, even those for whom love will cost us something. We love them as well. I mean, is there any love more inclusive than that? The story of who we are because of God's intervention on our behalf leads us to be, forms us to be more inclusive in who we love, but it also forms us and leads us and teaches us to be more exclusive in what we'll do. Verse 4 highlights that and gets straight to the countercultural narrative that's going on at the time. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Two commands. One reason. Why? Because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, what the author is commanding here is simple. It doesn't take a lot of explanation. We could go into the Greek words and exactly what they mean, but most of us have a pretty good idea of what he's talking about just from the English translations. He's saying, let marriage be held in honor, high honor. Whether you're in one or not, honor the marriages of the people around you and the people in this community and the people in the community of faith. Honor the idea of marriage itself. Honor it. Treat it as precious, as valuable. Don't try to get out of marriage something it was never designed to give, and don't try to get outside of marriage something that it, you were only designed to get inside of it. Treat marriage as precious. 
The world around them treated marriage as a means to an end, as an opportunity to gather wealth and power and status. So you married for a name, you married for money, you married for position. Uh, somebody wasn't marriage material unless they could bring something to the table that you needed, either wealth, assets, uh, a higher social standing than you, access to jobs that you wanted or circles that you wanted to run in. Don't marry somebody. You, wouldn't, you would never marry somebody for love. You would marry them because they got you something you needed. And then within that marriage, okay, there's marital intimacy, and that's important because out of that comes sons. But if you wanted it to actually, like if you were actually interested in some sort of pleasure or some sort of fulfillment out of it, well, you didn't go to your spouse. You went to whoever you met or whoever you had on the side, one person, second person, three people, whatever gender, however many at once. It didn't matter. That's not what marriage was for. Marriage was for making a name, for making a family, for making sons. Other people were for sex, were for pleasure, were for intimacy. And in that world, he's saying, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Don't go looking outside of marriage for what you can only get inside of it by God's design. Don't go looking to marriage to give you what you can't get out of it, what you can only find in God. Our culture is not that different. We still primarily think and treat marriage and sex as, as about us, right, for our own benefit. They lived in a story that said you're nothing if you're not married. You're nothing if you haven't built a family name. We live in the midst of a story that says you're nothing if you're not yourself. You're nothing if you're not, or if you can't live your authentic truth openly and out in front of everybody. You're not, you're not anything, you're not worth anything if you're not you, unfettered and unrestrained. So if marriage makes you happy, go for it. If it doesn't, whatever, you don't need it. The author of Hebrews is saying, look, there's, there's a different story. The story told to us in the 12 chapters in Hebrews and throughout scripture that says God has made something for you and for your good. He's redeemed you from all the broken ways that you can explore it and express it. And he is calling you to live in such a way that holds his design in honor for your good and for the good of the community around you. He says, if, if you're worshiping Christ, this is what a lived out life of worship will look like. Our culture says, you don't submit yourself to that kind of authority. Don't let anyone tell you what you can and can't do. Okay, you can allow some people to tell you what you can and can't do if you want, but only if you want, only if you decide it's okay for them to tell you, for some person or teacher or book or words to tell you what it's okay for you to do and what it's not okay for you to do. And so marriage becomes a, a contract. Even in the church, where we're the people being shaped by the story of God, even within the church, we tend to think of marriage as an agreement where two people come together and as long as they feel affection towards each other and want to stay in the agreement, then they stay in it. It's not the biblical ideal. It's not the biblical idea. The biblical idea is of a covenant, of a union, a commitment, a, really a union of all possible unions, mind, body, will, and soul. The kind of thing that can't be broken except by death. 
This is a countercultural way of looking at what our lives are for and what they're about. It's countercultural because there's a different story telling us who we are, what's valuable, and where we're going. But even in the church, our debates about same-sex marriage and all of the stuff around it, even within those debates, we have, we have all started to come to think that marriage is about making us happy. That marriage is about making me happy, and if I'm not happy in the marriage, well, then God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. Why would he want me to stay in it? Or we think uh, if marriage is about satisfying some deep need inside of myself to feel lovely, lovable, like someone is going to be there for me, it's a way that we, uh, we try to make ourselves feel like we're not going to be alone as we face the void of darkness and death. That just got dark really fast, I'm sorry. But we treat marriage as a thing that is about making us happy. And so all these debates that the church has with those outside the church or even inside the church about same-sex marriage and is it okay or is it not, all the debate is about is who gets to be in a marriage because we all have adopted the idea that marriage is about making us happy, and it's not. It's not. It's not why God created it. It's an amazing byproduct of a healthy marriage, but it's not the purpose The purpose, the biblical purpose of a marriage is for two people to bind themselves to one another so tightly that their own lives and the life of the family they produce and the community in which they live flourish into the way that God designed for them to live. Peace, contentment, happiness. The biblical idea of a marriage is not about what can I get out of it. How does it make me feel? How do I look next to this person? Look, look at the kind of person I could get. It's about what I can give, who I can give myself to and find in that act of giving a deeper kind of life than is available outside of that relationship. That's countercultural. I know. There's a different story shaping us than the story of the world around us. Marriage is great. I'll admit it. It's awesome. But if you think that your marriage is somehow going to fill some deep-seated need to be loved, it's going to make you feel lovable for once, it's going to make you feel like you deserve to have somebody pay attention to you, it's going to make you feel like you're worth something, It doesn't matter who you marry, you're going to crush that person under the weight of your need for salvation. You will crush them at some point in the future. It's not what marriage is for, and it's not what we can get out of it. And the author of Hebrews is reminding his readers, look, you're living out a story of a people purchased by Jesus, living rightly with God and in community, letting brotherly love be the the umbrella over everything. In the light of that, of a community of brotherly love, don't go sleeping around. Do you have any idea how destructive that's going to be to your community? Support one another's marriages. Don't jump into them and out of them and go all over the place. Do you have any idea how that's going to destroy the fabric of the community that is being created out of the person and work of Jesus Christ? Hold marriage in high honor. Keep the marriage bed undefiled. And there's a warning that comes with it. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. I don't even like saying those words. 
but it's making a pretty strong point that those who place a personal desire for pleasure or selfishness or self-expression or sexual self-expression or whatever, whoever, anybody who places that desire over the authority of God, the Word of God, the design of God is going to somehow face a judgment. Now, I don't think this is some big end time thing where it's like, and over here are all the Christians who didn't sleep around, and over here are all the ones who did, and you're being ostracized or something. It, it's not. Christ covered everything. This, no sin is bigger than any other, and this sin is not bigger than any other. It's not the one by which we find out if you're really a Christian or not. Christ has covered it all, and yet there's some aspect uh, within which sexual immorality and adultery, the, the breaking of the brotherly love commitment to one another, gets judged. I don't know if it's, it's the consequences of the action itself. I, I, I don't know how to understand this, but I know that it's important enough. <laughs> it's important enough to the foundation of the community and to the life of true worship lived in accordance with the story God is telling about us. That he says, look, if you, if you can believe this whole thing and not treat this as important, there's a problem. Christians Christianity, because of the story that has shaped us, are radically more inclusive in who we will love, who we will bring in, hint, everyone, but radically more exclusive in what we will do. Because we recognize there is a bigger story, there is a higher story of greater value telling us what actually matters and what doesn't, telling us who's actually in charge and who isn't. It's not ourselves. There's somebody higher than us who tells us how to live for our own good. So as Christians shaped by this story, we're, we're more exclusive. We'll reject the behaviors that destroy the community around us and destroy ourselves. It's not what God has for us. More inclusive in who we love, more exclusive in what we'll do, but also more open-handed with what we have. More open-handed with what's in our hands. It's, it's in verse 5, and the commandments are pretty simple. Again, none of these commandments really need all that much explanation. But he says, keep yourself free, keep your life free from love of money. And be content with what you have. And there's a reason, because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Keep yourself free from love of money. Be content with what you have. Why? Well, I think we all know that we don't gather money just to have it. We gather it because it does something for us. Even if you're Scrooge McDuck, you still have all that money because you want to swim in it. It's for something. So we keep it in our bank accounts. We keep it in our investment portfolios. We keep it somewhere because it does something for us. Generally, helps us feel safe, powerful, confident, really at the bottom, just at peace. Why do we gather stuff? Because it, it makes me feel, temporarily, a little bit, to like, and I need some more, it makes me feel at peace. So the author's saying, okay, free yourself from the love of money. Be content with what you have. God has said, look, I'm never going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. Free yourself from the love of money. Not, not as if that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, and every ancient author agreed, from Aristotle to Plato, Epictetus to Cicero, they all said uh, that where true wealth lies is in not wanting very many things. Yesterday, we were, my father-in-law and I were talking about, uh, he'd signed up for free satellite radio to listen to the NCAA games. It, of course, it was free until he signed up and then found out it was only free for a week. 
and the games are three weeks long, and I was like, Doug, there's a simple solution. Just don't care about basketball. Right? Totally simple. Makes sense to me. You won't be in want if you don't have any wants. That's not the point. He's not saying be free from the love of money so that you won't want money. He's saying be free from the love of money because there's something else you should want more. should want God more. I know that's his point because he quotes this verse. God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the promise of God's presence is not legal tender. You can't use it to get things that you want. You can't trade the presence of God for food or clothing or housing or anything like that. So when he says you don't need money because you have God, he's saying the thing you're trying to get out of money, peace, security, contentment, wholeness, happiness, you can only get out of God. But look what God has promised. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Why do you need a vault full of stuff when it won't get you the thing you already have because of God, who said, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. You have everything you need because you have God. So be content with what you have, not because wanting less is the end goal in itself, but because when all you need is God, you can be at peace even if you have no stuff or a limited amount of stuff. See, the Greek story said, be free from the love of money so that you can have some sort of contented psychological wholeness. I don't need much because I don't want much. Our culture, our story says, get all you can because stuff is how you're happy. Or live on as little as you can because experiences are what make you happy. Use your money to get happiness. And the Christian story is saying, look, you have God. What more do you need? You can, you can give so much more because you already have everything you need. You have God and he's not leaving. He's promised. See, it turns out for those first Christians living in a anything goes, everybody has their own idea, do what you want culture, to learn what it meant to be a part of the story of God and to begin to live life in conformity to that reality was disruptive. It was subversive. Their worship lived out, shook themselves and the world around them. The same is true today. Understanding who we are within the story of God, the reality of who God is, will shake who we are, shake the world around us. So how's it going to shake you? I've got a couple diagnostic questions I want to ask you. If it's true that a story, or that a life lived according to the story of who God is, as told in Hebrews, will make us more inclusive in who we love, more exclusive in what we do, and more open-handed with what we have, well then what about you? What about me? Am I becoming more inclusive in who I love? One of the marks of a true Christian is that more and more they love people who are different from them. People who initially they thought were unlovable begin to appear lovely to them. I mean, you may be more like me whenever somebody comes along that I don't know, I look at them going, how much work are you going to be? Because I only have so much, and then I'm done, right? I got priorities. I have people that I need to love, and then all these others, well, some, someone else will love you. That's what the body's for. Someone else can love you. If we are growing according to this story, 
realizing over and over again how we were loved when we didn't deserve it. How can we not become the kind of people who love other people even when they don't deserve it, according to our estimation? And so we grow in who we love. We also grow in our awareness of what we're doing, what we shouldn't be doing. See, we can, uh, we can dial that into just questions around marriage and sexuality and say, okay, are you holding marriage in high honor? Are you keeping the marriage bed undefiled? Are you treating marriage as something precious? It's not enough to just say, yeah, I'm not sleeping around. Of course I'm treating marriage as precious. But if you're trying to get out of your marriage something it's not designed to give, if you're trying to get out of it that sense of satisfaction and wholeness of what one sociologist called salvation out of your marriage, you're not treating it with honor. It doesn't matter how many letters you write to your congressman telling him to vote one way or the other on a bill. If you come home and you expect your spouse to be the be-all, end-all in your life, to be the one thing that makes you happy, never disappoints you, and never fails, you are not holding marriage in high honor. You are trying to get out of it something it was never designed to give you that you were only designed to get from God. To hold marriage in high honor is to say, here's what a marriage can do and what it can't. And if I'm in one or if I'm not in one, here's how I'm going to live in light of that. It's not enough to just say, well, of course, I've signed some petitions. If you, if you go home and you're a jerk to your spouse, that's not the way it works. Hold your own marriage in high honor. Keep your own bed pure and undefiled. And by that example, draw others into the, the image of marriage as beautiful as God intended it to be. The world needs to see marriages that are done according to God's design. I don't mean God's design in terms of who's in them. I mean God's design in terms of what they're like. He needs to see us holding marriage in high honor. That's the dialed-in question. But of course, just having commandments towards moral purity in one sense or another makes us ask big-picture questions. Who has the authority to tell you what you can and can't do? Who gets to say to you, this is okay and this isn't? Or, I know how you feel, but. Who gets to say that? Now, it could be a friend, it could be your social circle, it could be a parent, it could be a teacher, it could be a pastor, a ministry leader, a Bible teacher, it could be whatever. But if it doesn't ultimately come down to this, if it doesn't ultimately come down to here, then I'm talking to the Christians in the room then you, you have a reckoning you need to come to. If you come to this and you say, well, I agree with most of it, but I don't agree with these parts because that didn't work for me or that wasn't good for me or that's just not really what I feel, then you have an authority question. Who gets to decide? Our culture tells us, I decide. No one tells me anything other than what I agree to allow them to tell me. And Scripture tells us, the story of Christianity tells us, there's somebody bigger, and there's something bigger. You're not the final decider. Someone else is. Now, if you're a Christian and you're hearing this, 
uh, you're going to have to face that reckoning in your own mind and figure out what you think. If you're not a Christian and you're hearing this, this is countercultural. I, I know that. I get that. Nobody wants to be told what they have to do. I mean, I feel like I've done a halfway decent job of at least publicly saying I want to submit to the authority of Scripture, and I don't like to be told what to do. I'm going to read it and figure it out for myself. This is countercultural because it's a different story. It's a different idea of what's valuable, what should be valued, and what the point of being a human being is. So it sounds a little different than maybe what you've heard in the world around us. But that's what a life lived in conformity to the reality of who God is and what he's done for us looks like. It looks like this. There are things more important than my own sexual identity or sexual expression or self-expression. There are things that are more valuable and of higher worth. And so because those other things are more valuable, I subsume this one under it and live in a way to preserve the things of higher value. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. Brotherly love. Don't rip apart the community like this. It's not what you were made for. That was second. Third, open-handed. How good, how are you doing at being open-handed? I mean, is God really enough so that you don't have to hold everything so tightly? Half of you are going out to lunch after this. Try something. Tip the waiter or or waitress twice what you think they're worth. And when that little voice inside says, don't give away so much, you might need it. You can say, shut up. I got God. That's enough. I mean, test yourself. Try it. See how it feels. I don't know. If I go out with the grandparents, I'll let them pay, and then it's not my problem. (laughs) Now I'm going to have to pay. Uh, It's... (laughs) It's worth a shot. See, are you open-handed? Are you at the point where you can say, you know what? God is enough. I don't need the next iPhone. God is enough. I don't need the next bigger house, the next bigger car, the next whatever. God's enough. You know what? I have enough. I can give this away. Are you more open-handed as you're growing as a believer? Are you becoming more open-handed with your stuff because God is enough? That's the question. Turns out, if you ask yourself these questions and begin to grow in these areas as a believer, it turns out that's going to disrupt you, the lives of the people around you, the person you're married to, your kids, your parents. It's going to disrupt things because it's different. There's a different story telling us what's important. It will be uncomfortable and cost something, and that's hard. I know, I don't even like praying when, you know, I know the server's coming back and I'm gonna make him uncomfortable. I don't like making people uncomfortable by acting differently, but God is calling us to live our lives shaped by this story. But it's gonna cost us. I know it's gonna cost us because there was one man who lived his life with a more inclusive love a more exclusive morality and a more open-handed perspective on everything, including his own life, which he gave willingly and freely so that you and I could come into that love and come into that life. He lived that inclusive love perfectly, that exclusive morality perfectly with entirely open hands, and he was paraded through the streets and held in high honor and killed. Living a life conformed to the reality of who God is will cost us. Maybe cost us everything. 
it's going to cost us social standing, friendships, jobs, business. It's going to make people uncomfortable, maybe even cost us all that we have. But that's what a life lived in accordance with the reality of who God is looks like. It's going to cost us. But we can pay the price because we've learned to worship. Look at verse 6. We've learned to worship. We can confidently say with the psalmist, we can confess the Lord is my helper. We can affirm I will not fear. And we can boast, what can man do to me? I've already got everything I need. Pray with me. Father, you have called us to a life of radical worship, disruptive worship, almost subversive worship that threatens and challenges the stories and the narratives and the authorities all around us. I pray that you would help us to conform ourselves to you as our king, to your story as our guide, to your reality as the foundation of our identity. Help us as a community of people who have been brought near to you by the grace of of Jesus, our great high priest, through his one and only sacrifice, to worship you in a life lived to your glory. As adopted sons and daughters, let us be children of the Father who live just for the pleasure of bringing pleasure to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, our brother who saved us. Amen.